This girl from my past, that ridiculous ass. She attended UMass and she passed every class. Walked down the hall with a stuck up sass from the basketball plate. See, it's time to pay dues, deliver the news. Like UMass, we refuse to lose. Yeah. I like a really huge ass. Bend over, take her to church, now she a UMass. I think I'd rather die in a nuclear war than go to only. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Live from New York City, this is Curry Hicks Sage. It is Sunday, January 24th, 2021. Haven't been with you in a couple weeks after a pair of quick uh, hitter episodes in advance of both the LaSalle and Rhode Island games. And I was... Watching The Sopranos, uh, as Twitter followers may know, I've been I've been re-watching The Sopranos, and um, you know I just the game today kept sticking in my brain. It's it's been one that's taken not the kind of processing it would take for like a George Mason loss or something like that. It's just in certain ways today's game. Oh, and, and also I was making popcorn, so that sort of triggered me. And I said, okay. I got to do a pod. I'm thinking about the game still. You know, I, I can only watch so many Sopranos in a day. I know it's going to be a busy work week. Let's just bang out the pod tonight. In general, with VCU, I would normally like to bring on a guest from there. We've had a couple of good VCU guests over the years, but it's not a team that we don't know. We kind of know, you know, more or less like the situation down there. They have a great fan base and blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to get this this rolling and get my thoughts out before another game comes. Tonight's episode, of course, brought to you by the fine folks at Five College Movers. World-class, stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Go with Five College Movers wherever you go. I don't know if you guys have been playing. Many of you have on Twitter, but I mean, they've had a tremendous thing going this year. Every year, every go follow them on Twitter because every... Um, you know, a few minutes before... Actually, sometimes it's upwards of like... 12 or 24 hours before every game they've been doing a competition with the winner getting a gift card at their local uh, favorite restaurant of choice or local business establishment or charity and it's you know it's like Trey Mitchell takes you know points plus Carl Pierre threes divided whatever and there's a whole little formula it's a lot of fun and they've gotten close to 100 entrants for some of them and I actually won today so there was a win me and uh, two others both picked the correct number today. Um, shout out to Marshmont63, longtime friend of the pod, who has won like three times. Just absolutely absurd. But anyway, call Pat and the gang at Five College Rumors if you're going anywhere. World-class, stress-free moving, Pioneer Valley and beyond. Friends of the, po- of the pod. Friends of UMass Athletics. Okay, so... And by the way, I know everyone riffs on me for... Uh, eating popcorn in the pod, but the truth is I would love an analysis because I bet you I've only done it probably in 15% of shows, 10 maybe. Um, but work with me here. So um, let's get into some things because some weeks back, I want to say after the Bryant loss, a couple of days after the Bryant loss, right around Christmas, before we resume play, Maybe it was after the Mason loss. Was the Mason loss right before? Whatever it was, I, I think I said, like, 
I think it was prior to the start of conference play. I don't know. Yeah, because Mason, whatever. So I basically said, I don't want to tweet about the games for the next six games. Not because, and of course I wasn't able to do that, but if you've noticed until today on Twitter, and even on the pods, I haven't been getting deep into the actual games. And there's a couple reasons for that. Namely, it's that I always said from the outset, the first six-ish games on the calendar on the conference calendar were against weaker teams. And the next several, which began today, were against more difficult teams. And so I was always kind of saying that no matter what happens in those in that first third of the of the conference season, St. Louis notwithstanding, although I thought we would split with St. Louis. We, of course, did not end up playing St. Louis. Had two games against them uh, canceled. Slotted in the roadie game, an early roadie game that wasn't originally expected, and then lost out on the GW game, which was almost a sure thing win because of the riots in the nation's capital. So, obviously, some things have changed in terms of the timing of things. But I always thought we matched up uniquely well with St. Louis, and I thought we would at least split with them, no matter how hot they started. Now, they, of course, had got COVID, haven't played for about a month, returned to action against Dayton on Tuesday. But, you know, those games were nixed. But regardless, I kind of thought we'd open 5-1. and one. Even, you know, if we lost both to SLU, it still wouldn't tell us a lot because we'd have, let's say, four wins against four bad teams and two losses against St. Louis. And it's still like, well, that's not telling us much because if you lose to the consensus number one team in the league twice... By the way, I think Bonaventure might be that increasingly becoming that team, but at least as of a month ago, the sense was if you lost twice to them and you beat four others, again, it still just wouldn't tell you a lot because none of them were kind of in that borderline games realm. And the test of whether UMass is a 12 and 6, 13 and 5 type team or a 8 and 10, you know, 9 and 9, 7 and 11 type team is really how you do against those teams in the four through seven, four through eight range. Especially this year where the bottom is like pretty solidified, has solidified really early with St. Joe's just being a disaster, GW pretty much in shambles, and Fordham being Fordham. So I kind of said, look, like it doesn't matter what happens in these games. And I kept my word to a degree, in the sense that I didn't get into any sort of comprehensive analysis of the basketball itself on the pod. We had a LaSalle show, we had a Rhode Island show, they were long, fun shows, but they didn't really go deep on, like, you know, what's going on on the court. In fact, I don't even think I did, like, an intro segment like this, so they were kind of different episodes than usual. So now, I come to you after a 69-60 loss at the hands of Davidson, and I confess I missed the first 10 minutes of the game when they played phenomenally well. I caught the end of that phenomenal stretch. I can kind of imagine it. I've looked at the box score, whatever. Um, I couldn't get a login. It was a disaster. I was losing my mind. Uh, but I figured it out. So, and, and now we have VCU forthcoming. So going into today, I was basically saying, yeah, we're 4-1. and one. It's encouraging. We've started to play some decent basketball. We started to defend a bit. But, you know, let's wait and see. And the Davidson VCU back-to-backs, one at home, one on the road, were really kind of a perfect indication as to what this team, you know, is and, and where it's likely going. 
And while we're only halfway through that that uh, that slate of two games, I feel like regardless of what happens against VCU, I can say <laughs> with relative certainty that the defining word right now for this program, as it's kind of been all year, is incoherent. Inconsistent is another way of saying that, but it's not so much that it's inconsistent, although it is. It's that you can't quite understand the uh, brand of inconsistency. It's not always the same sort of inconsistent. It's more incoherent. And I note the word incoherent also because I did give it some thought before I said that word. But I note the word incoherent because it does feel as if, and this is the defining characteristic of McCall's harried, helter-skelter, almost four years in Amherst. It's that you never quite know what he's really trying to do here. And it's not that it's always bad. I think he has a command over certain aspects of the program that Kellogg did not. But Kellogg, you knew what he was about, right? Like, you kind of just... And I'm not yearning for Kellogg. This is not what the episode's about. But here's how I thought of Kellogg teams in an anecdote. And it's dangerous, of course, to, to summarize nine years in one anecdote. But that's the nature of the world. I'm trying to be careful when I say it because I want to be as precise as possible. But the singular anecdote that encapsulated nine years of Derek Kellogg were his players did not ever wear matching sneakers. There was all sorts of different colors. There were neon greens and turquoise. And and yet, a lot of the time they played pretty hard. Or they did enough with what they had to get some wins. Because on a certain level, I think Derek knew who he was, at least toward when he was doing well, at least toward year six and seven. He struggled in seven, but I think he kind of said, look, I'm not a ball breaker on certain stuff. I don't have time to monitor every tweet and, you know, check every grade and, you know, or I don't want to. It's not who I am. And he got teams that were befitting of who that, who he was. And some will say, oh, that's critical, whatever. And at times it was because there were, you know, six of those nine were disappointing seasons, certainly five. And, but, you know, he got some players. <laughs> he got some good players who frustrated you, who were, you know, four, fringe four-star, high three-star kids who were, you know, maybe not a power five coach's dream. Um, I don't want to say he took a ton of kids with, like, baggage baggage, but he wasn't exactly taking, uh, you know, the most uh, 
upstanding no not even upstanding because I'm not talking about their moral character I'm just talking about like he didn't have a bunch of Carl Pierre's right who's a, by all accounts a very good kid works hard gonna get two degrees you know um, always in the gym you know but also not freakishly gifted athletically the Kellogg's guys were kind of the opposite right so I note this because if Matt had gone after all Carl Pierre's and just ridden that until it didn't work anymore and that might have been this year might have been last might have been next but you know all kids of that mold kind of like fringe D1 players who worked really hard and could catch and shoot or you know make fundamental plays so basically if he wanted to coach a mid-level CAA team um, you know maybe someone in the northeastern sort of Hofstra realm or high-level Patriot League team, that sort of team. If he wanted to coach that group, he could have just gotten 12 Pierres, basically. You know, or people, you know, and again, I'm speaking in broad strokes. He didn't. Um, he got one Pierre. He inherited some Kellogg guys. He brought in some transfers, a couple of kids that he knew from Florida, one more local kid, took a chance there. Um, you know, an Australian transfer from LSU. And then he got some kids that maybe were, you know, had all-league type potential. He thought, you know, the Trey Woods, the Cy Chapmans, the Samba Diallos, all these names that are no longer with the program, right? And then after two years, he blew it up and he brought in an assistant with great local ties who brought in almost all of his kids, or many of them. I should say almost all of the kids brought in were affiliated with him in some capacity and you know that has borne fruit in some regards and a lot of those kids are really good and you know similarly the playing style has varied has differed sometimes it seems like we want to be a half court team that um throws the ball 200 and something times a game or whatever that metric, that, that stat he cites is. Sometimes we want to push tempo and turn teams over. And and maybe it's just that I'm on Twitter during the games and I'm not always as locked in, although I think I'm pretty locked in. Maybe, so I'm just trying to account for maybe my faults here, but incoherent. Yes, we have consistently struggled late in games, um, and that's a real concern. There are two or three very specific things that have frustrated me about the coaching this season and I, and I hope to get into them at some point and maybe if those things were corrected there would be more coherence but the reality is it's incoherent there is not a tangible identity to this basketball team and there really hasn't been to the Matt McCall tenure other than pockets or stretches of the first year when the team was so bad or so lacking in depth I should say that they played really hard and competed and other than a handful of blowouts at least my recollection was that we felt pretty good 
I mean, they beat Providence and Georgia with, like, nobody. And then Holloway was lost early on going into conference play, and they went out and beat Dayton on the road. There were some real moments that year. Pipkins played out of his mind at points. Um, that obviously helped. Um, but other than that, you know, and, and a few lockdown defensive performances last year when they were really getting it going for, you know, several weeks toward the back of conference play, it's just not clear to me what identity he's trying to cultivate on this basketball team. Is it a sophisticated playbook where we, you know, run a lot of different actions and run a lot of guys off screens? And is it go down to Trey every time as we kind of did down the stretch today? Is it pressing as we sometimes do very successfully, other times not? You know, look, some of this is that there's been injuries, there's been guys leaving, there's been transfers, there's a lack of continuity, there's different lineups that work in different settings. But whatever it is, you you don't really always know. And I note that in particular tonight, because I just thought, particularly in the second half, the juxtaposition between that and what Bob McKillop and his Davidson group did could not have been more stark. And yeah, I'll note UMass shot poorly. Some things are not on the coach at all. They're execution issues. And although I do think the lineups are on him, we'll get to Carl Pierre later. But it felt as if Davidson has a way they want to play. And it's to oversimplify, they're going to screen a thousand times, run their guys off of certain curl screens and do some misdirection stuff and, and often very sophisticated stuff that they've mastered. You can just tell they, it's like a, I think I've likened it to like a classical cellist before. You can just tell like they just drill these things and it takes a certain type of kid. And I note that because every year, and again, like I don't, I don't follow every Davidson game, but I know enough about the league to say with relative certainty that every year, the recipe for Bob McKillop is pretty clear. He gets one star guard. At his best, it's been it was Steph Curry, but beyond that, he's had a lot of good guards. I mean, Kellen Grady, you know, he's fallen off a bit, but at one point, people were talking about him as a lottery pick after his freshman year. He got injured, and things have happened. But he's still really good. He gets one guy like that, one stud wing type foreign kid and he's got the kid Lee from Korea who's really good really good he's gotten much better too he was terrific I mean even though he didn't, his numbers weren't great like it just felt like he was like you know like every he just was I don't know he was great and he his numbers weren't that good he was like that kid's really good and then he gets like you know like one other like solid guard who's like a solid like sort of A-10 player and then like a bunch of role players like European kids and you know, like, not exactly like freak athletes, not, you know, it's basically mastering the formula that George Mason unsuccessfully tries to adopt, which is, you know, uh, I mean, Mason, I, I think, is, is, is in that vein, but they don't have the star and they don't have the great foreign wing. So it's like, you know, 
they probably have actually better role players to some extent. But the, that's not the point. The point is, that's who they are. Other than the Steph years, I don't think he's ever gotten out of the first round. Maybe he's won one game 32 years in the tournament, other than the Steph years. No knock on him. He's one of the best coaches in America. And they sometimes struggle at, out of the gate, in part because they run a lot of sophisticated stuff and it's challenging for teams, uh, for, for his groups to figure it out. And then they click and they're never a team you want to see in February, March. And I should note that today was, I think, their 14th, 15th game. So they, they had that advantage going for them. But, you know, they struggled out of the gate. UMass defended really well. They locked in. And some people say, oh, well, UMass, like, started fading down the stretch. And just and there is some of that. But it's also that Davidson just knows what they want to do. They want to play it slower in the half court. They're going to run their sets. They're going to do it no matter what. And they're going to live and die by that. And the kids get it, and and the coach get it, and it's just coherent. It's not always masterful. They always lose some games to teams they shouldn't because they're not freakishly athletic. They don't, you know, they'll have some off night, off shooting nights, and they and they do rely on the three. But even tonight, where they struggled from three for large parts of that game, they still managed to come at us and win. They made adjustments. They went to a zone. We struggled against it. Trey struggled a lot in the second half. They kind of collapsed the paint dared us to shoot some threes. We bricked some a lot. And they won the basketball game. Workmanlike, just methodical, well-coached, got out of there with a solid road win. And the thing is, for UMass, we know it's no longer a talent issue. You can quibble here and there, and you can say that, you know, there are some weak spots, I think particularly defensively. I don't think we have a, a, lot, a lot of solid on-ball defenders. We're not flawless. But if you put the players on both those teams in a pickup game and you, you, you bring in a coach and he watches them just in informal settings and you say, who you know, just like a good generic high school coach. You say, which group do you want to coach today? You know, if you, if you, if you got gunned your head and it's, uh, you know, 10 grand if you lose kind of thing. I'm pretty sure he takes UMass's roster. Certainly would have taken it if we had our full team today, but that's another conversation. But I'm pretty sure he takes us. I mean, the Davidson Bigs, you know, they did some nice things. They defended. Come on, like, Trey Mitchell against those guys? Come on. Noah Fernandez at the one. Javon Garcia and his athleticism and slashing ability. Tabaji Walker in terms of his length and ability to defend. Um, to say nothing of us having the sorts of, you know, ostensibly good three-point shooters that you would expect on more on, like, a Davidson team. Like, Weeks and Pierre kind of feel like Davidson players in some regards, and it's, it's an interesting thought experiment to think of how they would do at Davidson under Bob McKillop. It's an interesting thought experiment. And I'm not totally sure, but I, it's, a, it's certainly something to think about. Um, but yeah, I mean, we got some dudes on this team. Ronnie DeGray, there's no athletic 6'7", 220, you know, banger, glue guy, can hit from 14, can hit from 3. Like, they don't have that. I mean, the kid Lee is... A little bit in that mold, but frankly far better. I mean, he's terrific. 
but you know you, you gotta take you gotta like your, your chances with, with this roster and that is a far cry from last year's roster which was I mean Colton Mitchell who has basically been hurt or not playing for weeks was starting in a lot of games at point guard you now have Javon Garcia and Noah Fernandez like that is a as robust of an upgrade as you can get at a position on both ends really um you know Ronnie over Samba no question in terms of decision making in terms of ability to move without the ball no question um you know a year more experienced Pierre and and weeks I mean come on the issue here is not the players there are things that individual players do that frustrate me and that I don't put on the coach but the issue right now and and, and I don't know if it's partly on the players but there's no edge the incoherence I think manifests itself in a lack of consistent intensity. And that's been a problem for a couple years now. You know, that second half stretch where UMass basically failed to score for a long stretch and really did not have the right lineups on the court was mystifying mystifying because I do think Matt understands the game I think he doesn't always understand let me be clear he understands his personnel to a a large extent I've seen far worse out there he does not always understand and I don't quite know how I do maybe I don't just watching does not quite understand the time the times in which that personnel should be deployed. So let me transition now to the specific things that are frustrating me about this team and have caused us to go five and four beyond the incoherent overall identity thing. Because I actually think that there's enough talent on this roster and enough good kids and enough effort that if you made the fixes I'm talking about. The incoherence might not even be noticed. In fact, perhaps these are the fixes to the incoherence. Maybe if you do these things, the team is no longer one that I would define as incoherent. Maybe it still is. But here's what they are. First and foremost, and then again, and I I note these in the context, particularly of that second half, second half, you know, about a 10-minute stretch there. the way in which he subs is at times unfathomably bad. So people will say, oh, I don't like the plays he runs. I don't... I, I'm, that stuff will happen. Like, I, I think sometimes they run decent offense. They miss shots. That shit happens. You know, college kids are inconsistent. But let's talk about minutes and who's getting them. Because it ties right into the subbing. Guys, 
I don't know how to say this without sounding like a condescending, arrogant dick. And at times, when it comes to this, and nothing else in my life, but when it comes to this, I can be that way because I feel like I know a lot about it. Carl Pierre can't be getting that many minutes. He just can't. I appreciate the loyalty he's given. I appreciate that he's been an honorable, upstanding, wonderful person by all accounts for the university. But he has not become meaningfully better since his freshman year. In fact, by virtually all statistical metrics, he's regressed. Not significantly. And it's not even a knock on Carl. Because Carl is what he is. He's a catch-and-shoot guy. Occasionally he can put the ball on the floor, one dribble, shot. He'll work hard on defense and he'll rebound, but he's not a sensational on-ball defender. He's not going to stop any great players in this league. And if he is not making shots, and you have a cadre of talent on the bench who play the same position, why the fuck are you playing him 35 motherfucking minutes a night? It's unconscionable. It's outrageous. <sighs> and it's not about Carl. Because if Carl's out there bricking shot after shot after shot, what do you want him to do? If you keep him in there for 35 minutes and he's getting a rhythm three, you let him shoot it. And once in a while, he'll hit a few. And he'll be a terrific addition to your basketball team. We have seen him win basketball games by himself. He defeated Providence in an otherwise disastrous 2018-2019 campaign by himself. He hit five threes in the second half. It was sensational. I damn near cried when the game was over. That tells you a little bit about me. But the bottom line is that he is not playing good basketball. He is inconsistent. I don't think he's had a... And yes, his numbers are a little bit up. Uh, today probably took him back fairly significantly, but I think he was averaging 15 point something going in, which was above his typical, you know, 12.1, 12.3 realm that he's been in for most of his career. But let's look, as I pull up some scores, recent scores. He was one for seven today. He had one bucket. It was with three seconds to go when we were down 12. As meaningless of a bucket as you can get. He was one for seven. And he was uh, one for six from three. Finished with five points. So I guess he hit two from the line. Four rebounds. Two assists. I don't have his turnover numbers here because the ESPN box score on your phone is uh, less than complete. He played 36 minutes. Not only is that more than Trey Mitchell, who was hurt the final three, so granted, it's more than Noah Fernandez, who played 35. And it is 17 minutes more than Javon Garcia, who is a terrific defender, and even when he does nothing offensively, which, by the way, I put a lot on, on McCall, because I don't think they're utilizing him well, he is a threat at the rim and a better entry passer to Trey Mitchell. I barely see Carl get the ball to Trey Mitchell. It's bizarre. Watch the next game. You'll see it. TJ Weeks, who went 
six for ten and four for five from three. Had four of our eight threes. The rest of the team was four for 17 from deep. TJ Weeks played 22 minutes. So, and Debaji Walker, who only took one field goal, by the way, and played sensational defense in the first half on Kellen Grady, who, by the way, had 20 points in the second half, played 12 minutes. Now, I'm not saying Tabaji Walker is a sensational offensive player. He's done virtually nothing on that end. The last three or four games, he's been downright awesome defensively. And if Carl's going to go one for the game, effectively zero for the game, and not be a sensational defender... Why is he playing more than three times the amount of minutes Debaji Walker's playing? Why is he playing more minutes than Debaji Walker, whose defense was terrific, and TJ Weeks, whose offense was terrific, combined? And why is he playing nearly double the minutes of arguably your most electric offensive threat in the half court, well, really in the full court, in Javon Garcia, who struggled today and didn't get to the rim, but that's another... I mean, got to, didn't get the touches he probably needed to, but that's another question. Okay, it's a game, just one game, no big deal. Let's look at some others. So, in the Fordham game, Carl took eight shots, all from deep. He hit three. I don't remember the manner and mode that it occurred in, but... The entire team was lights out in the first half. They were 9 for 13 from 3. The team went 1 for 15 in the second half from 3. Carl finished with 9 points. He played 35 minutes. Again, it's Fordham. You were up 25 points at the half. I don't really care. Debaji didn't take a shot. Again, not a sensational offensive player. Didn't take a shot. TJ struggled in that one, 3 for 10, 2 for 5 from 3, although worth noting, 2 for 5 is a better percentage for the game than Carl at 3 for 8. He played 17 minutes. Again, Carl can play more than TJ in that game. Fine. Play him 22. Play him 23. 35 versus 17 in a blowout? That's just Matt saying, I can't take this kid off the floor for some reason. Let's go to the prior game. UMass, Rhode Island. And Pierre shot 5 for 13. Not horrific. 2 for 9 from 3. Finished with 15 points. Played 38 minutes. TJ shot 2 for 5. One for three from three. So better percentages on both. Played 12 minutes. Let's go to the LaSalle game at home, which was another five for 13 performance. Three for 10 from three. 34 minutes. Compare that to Trey Mitchell, best player we've had at this university in 25 years, played 30 minutes in the game and shot the ball five times. 
Now, don't get me wrong, Trey has his off nights. He played like shit for large stretches of the game against Davidson. But the idea that Carl, in any game, should have nearly three times the number of attempts as a generational once in a, you know, era type big man is downright preposterous. Not to mention, in that aforementioned LaSalle game, Ronnie DeGray, 32 minutes, 4 for 6. Noah Fernandez, 28 minutes, 3 for 5. You tell me. Let's just do one more for the sake of it. Mason game. The disastrous overtime, double overtime loss. Carl plays 46 minutes. Topping all but Noah Fernandez, who tied him with 46 minutes. Carl was 5 for 14. He did shoot 3 for 6 from 3. Kudos. Finish with 19. But the thing is, if I played, or rather, if anyone on this roster was given 46 minutes and 14 shots, you have to think they're going to get double figures. In that game, Kyra McCrory only played 10 minutes. Got in foul trouble, but the point is, until he got hurt, he was terrific. I don't want to keep doing this. I'm sounding like a dick. I get it. I'm sounding like a dick. I'm sounding like a smarmy, condescending, know-it-all. I'm adopting a literal tone in my voice that is obnoxious, and it seems like I'm going after the kid. So let me step back. Because it's not about the kid. The kid doesn't make the substitutions. Presumably, he knows he's missing everything. Or at least that you have... So, so, so let, let me get more specific. I'm pretty sure if you play DeAndre Dominguez, who barely plays, 46 minutes, he'll finish with 12, 14 points. 46 minutes against a mediocre slash bad A-10 team. I mean... 46 minutes on a team that wants to play 11 guys and can and on which the drop between the first four and the next seven is you know considerable those those next seven in my opinion are not interchangeable but the next five kind of are by the way I count Garcia as one of my first four which he gets considerably fewer minutes than Carl but again it's not about Carl it's really not it's about Matt's insistence upon using him no matter what you know if Trey has an off night and he's had a few he's still going to get you 10 boards he's going to he's going to be draw opposing defenses so much that you know he's going to force uh, teams to help and, and, and hopefully get other guys open looks it's not like Carl is the kind of kid who is like defenses are, you know, planning their game plans around. If he's a trailer on a 
break and he bangs a couple threes in a row, you keep him on the floor for 40 minutes. I don't care. I really don't care. He could play 40 minutes if he's hitting, even if he's hitting 40% with consistency. What's four or five for 13? Because he had a couple of those that might be close to 40%. I'll do the math right here. Five for 13 is 38%. All right. So if he gets one more, if he's like six for 14, even if he's six for 14, you shouldn't get 40 minutes. You shouldn't get 40 minutes unless you're shooting 70%. I mean, that's insane. But if he's six for 14 or whatever, you know, I probably want those shots, some of them to come from elsewhere, but I won't lose my mind. I don't think he shot that well in one game. So that's on that. That's point one A of my outline on incoherence. And it has to do with subbing. More specifically with respect to subbing, and this is a problem about the team in general, we the guys who get a, the bulk of the minutes, particularly on the wings and on guarding the perimeter, which is really everyone but Trey, if we're being honest, there aren't many that are good on-ball defenders. Even Noah Fernandez, who I love, and is an absolute pest and gets a lot of steals, is not a great on-the-ball defender. He's small. You know, he's... I mean, there was a play today where he got somehow caught up in transition with the Lee kid from... Davidson was like, what is he doing? He's like 5'11", the kid's like 6'7". But that's not, he should always be on the court. He, he's in many ways the leader of this team, so I don't even want to get into him. He's been such a tremendous bright spot in the fringe third-team all-league guy. Besides Garcia, there's a lot of holes in the perimeter defense. Ronnie, though he can body guys and gets a lot of rebounds, is not actually a great on-the-ball defender. He, he struggles to close out um, on his man sometimes. Rotations are not his strength. And there was a couple instances, I think, against Rody where he was getting beat. And we didn't really notice it because he played so sensationally offensively that, like, it didn't matter. But, you know, he, he was he, he was he's, you know, he's a freshman, and his lateral quickness needs to improve, and it's fine. He's going to be really good. But he's not, like, necessarily a lockdown guy at the end. Debaji wasn't either until, like, two weeks ago, which is bizarre because it's, like, a massive jump in his game. It's so strange because he sucked on offense, but he's been great on day. So Carl, TJ, and Ronnie, and some to some extent Noah struggle um, at kind of defending the three-point line and, 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 and stopping really good guards. All right, not the end of the world. Get a lot of depth. And Dominguez kind of falls in that camp, too. So why then, at the end of games, in these close games, where you yourself, Coach McCall, have said that, you know, the, the A-10 is her, you know, he's become famous for this, like, stock-and-trade line, where it's like, you know, the end of, of these games, they come down to a few possessions, you got to be locked in, every possession matters, like, you know, where, in many ways, like, that was the sort of upgrade to Kellogg, right? Like, he didn't know if he could really recruit, you know, but you just got a feeling like this guy had his shit together down the stretch and kind of would make the right calls. And it's been, and, and maybe he did a little bit in past seasons, but this year in the losses and even in the roadie win, um, it's been glaringly bad in the same specific ways. And some of it 
you know, is the team has made shots. Like, Mason was hitting shots late. It was wild. But you got to go with Debaji, Cairo when he's back healthy, and then JG. Those three can D up. When you need a stop and then you want to get a run out, those are your guys. You don't need TJ or Carl in those moments. You don't. Neither of them are so sensational on offense that you have to have them there. Because Noah can shoot the shit out of the ball. I mean, he struggles sometimes, but, like, he can shoot it. Ronnie can shoot threes. Although, Ronnie, in this scenario, you go offense-defense. And there has been, against Mason, against Rhode Island, which we won, today, and against Bryant, and I think against Northeastern, I have to go watch the second Northeastern game, I have to go back and watch it. But in all of these stretches, moments down the stretch, we have had the wrong defensive lineups on the court. It's like, particularly against Rhodey, when Rhodey almost came back and won, and against Mason, I felt like I was watching the same game. We failed to close out on three-point shooters. Uh, our rotations were slow. Carl is not a horrific defender, but he's not a guy you want on the court when you have to get a stop. When you have to get a stop and you're up like four, which by the way, there's been a several instances where this scenario has, has like happened. Or when you're down four, like today when it was like we cut the lead to like 55-54 with probably four and change to go, and then we just squandered it. But you got to go with uh, Debaji. Uh, you got to go with Trey, Noah, JG, who can really defend. And you know your fifth can can ideally it would actually be Cairo. And his absence today was you, you could feel it. Those would be my five late um, in in defensive situation. And I'm just and, and what's crazy is like I'm talking about a few possessions. But so is Matt. He's the one who's saying it's all about these possessions. I'm saying just bring coherence and intensity on the defensive end for five or six possessions more at certain moments in the game. And I know the analytics people say every possession matters the same and blah, blah, blah. But, like, whatever. I mean, that's a conversation we could have, like, another time. Because you do want other guys on the court to hit shots at other moments in the game. But the reality is, like, when you just stop and it's late, You've gotten to that point. You lock in with your best defenders. Let's go. So, the Carl playing time, the inability to make the right uh, subs with respect to lineup decisions late, and honestly, those are my two big ones. Those two sticking points have killed me like four or five times this year already. And maybe Matt's right, right? Like, it is all about those handful of possessions. But if that's the case, then why are your lineups fundamentally the wrong ones in those moments? I swear I had a third one, but it's not coming to me now. And when you get done saying that, you're like, well, it's not that bad. He's misplaying, he's overplaying one guy, and he's not making the right subs down the stretch. That's not terrible coaching. It's not, and yet we're five and four with a really talented group. Bare minimum, we should be seven and two. We should have lost that game today. Davidson's good. 
I'm going to play right. Bare minimum is a 7-2 and two team. But we're still having the same conversation at 7-2 and two, in my opinion. These concerns are still sticking for me. And the fact that there's only two and you're 5-4 and four is kind of concerning because you're like, well, you lost four games and those are the only two discernible things you're not doing well. You have kind of bad perimeter defense and you're overusing a, a, a senior who still scores. Why are you 5-4? and four? Incoherence. I can't really explain it. But that's sort of what I'm getting at. And that's something you can't... You can't... Tabulate empirically. Right? Like, you can't... I, I've said the things that are tangible. Carl's getting too many minutes. Matt's not subbing guys at the right times. And our perimeter defense is not great. Those things are meaningful metrics, but they're not four loss metrics with talented group metrics. So what else is it? I don't know. It's a lack of coherence. We took like eight minutes off today. We looked like shit against that zone. Everybody's going to do that to us. It's not hard. Where was Ronnie DeGray in terms of flashing to the high post against that zone? And again, that's the sort of thing, I guess, which gets into the subbing as well. Matt's ability to manage the game moment by moment as it happens in real time is exceedingly poor right now. That doesn't mean he has been bad entirely because the game plans, we've, we've gotten out of the gate pretty well this year. And that's a contrast to last year. You think of that GW game or a couple others. If anything, we were like a comeback team when we succeeded last year. The St. Louis win, I think, we were, or the VCU win, maybe both. We were down fairly significantly early on. And we, we played tougher out of, the, out of the second half. This year, it's um, the opposite. We're coming in locked in, and then we fade. But again, the fact that this year is different than last, it's incoherent. I, re- I recognize that in overly going to that word in the fashion of like a generic radio host, I'm probably you know kind of just trying to like stick my point like a trial lawyer, and maybe I should do some more rigorous analysis, but you know, at the end of the day, like, I look at the numbers and I, I'm i still a field guy. I, I respect the numbers. But I think there's something beyond the numbers. Um, you know, I think when, you know, Ken Palm had that stat, we're the 357th unluckiest team in the country. It's like, yeah, it's true. But it's like, why? <laughs> and why have we lost a lot of close games, you know? Like, there's... there's <laughs> so to me... I think it's an interesting thought experiment. If Carl plays 20 minutes instead of 40, right? I mean, and by the way, if Ronnie's struggling, he doesn't have to play 30 either. Noah rarely struggles, so it's not really relevant with him. But lastly, in terms of playing time, as I'm saying all this, you have to have to, have to get Javon Garcia more involved in the half-court offense. It feels like any time they give it to him, 
he can get to the rim. But they either go, you know, but that that's so that goes back to Carl and, and to some extent TJ. If those guys are getting 25 shots combined a night, and it's probably a little less, but it's in that 20 to 25 range, and you got to get Trey his minimum 13 because he's Trey. Well, where's JG's shots going to come from? And he's made some great steals and takes to the hoop, but he'll get like three shots. He'll get like three shot attempts sometimes. He'll get to the lineup. Well, the salad game, he's like one for five, and he finished with eight points because he got to the front line. He'll miss some bunnies here and there, but like, the kid is explosive. We haven't had a kid like that in a while. He's Dante Clark, but actually knows how to defend. And you're telling me, like, he's getting three shots a night and TJ and Carl are combining for 25? Not a knock on those kids, by the way. Like, today, TJ was 6 for 10. He could shoot 20. I don't care. He's 12 for 20. He could shoot all he, all he wants. But when he's 1 for 11 and Carl's 2 for 9, you know, and they're 3 for 20, and JG's sitting there, like, getting four shots a night. It's like, wake the fuck up. You know? I mean, come on. Inexplicably lost his starting spot. Makes no sense. Even if you want Dabaji in for defense, which I totally get. Sit Carl. But he won't. And it's too bad because... I'm going to probably get blasted for bashing Carl. I'm not bashing Carl. He has won basketball games for us. He has been an invaluable contributor to the program. He does not need to get 37 motherfucking minutes a night. In fact, I would argue he probably would score virtually the same number of points a night in 19 or 20. And would be fresher on defense. Excuse me. <coughs> Perhaps the <coughs> the basketball gods came got me after that because Carl is such a good kid. But let's uh, segue to where we go from here <clears throat> as I grab some water. It's funny because I just watched a Sopranos episode where uh, Bobby Balaclava's father um, has like that intense cough, so maybe I'm internalizing some of that. I do think there's an interesting uh, little thought experiment of like what the show is like when I, after I've been watching The Sopranos, I notice my blood pressure is like considerably higher. That could also be a function of McCall, but you combine McCall, McCall's coaching and um, and uh, in late games and uh, The Sopranos, and I am like fucking putting on a show here in terms of just the theatrics of my pronouncements. Um. So, where do we go from here? Well, good question. VCU game will pro- will be revealing, but not as revealing, I think, as if we had won today. Because had we won, then all we had to do was kind of compete at VCU. I wasn't expecting to win two at both of these, right? But now I'm kind of expecting a loss. Not expecting, but like, 
it's not. I mean, it's very much easier place to play when there's no fans. Or I guess they do have like a thousand fans, but which actually is not insignificant. Coming to think of it, because nobody else has had any. But the point is, you're not going to the VCU of some years. They're good. The kid Bowen Highland is really good. One of the better players in the league. It's gonna be tough to stop. They have some weapons, some athletes. They defend. But it is worth noting that UMass matches up far better against them than they do against Davidson. Davidson, St. Bonaventure, and Richmond are teams I've said all along. UMass does not match up well against. I'd rather play St. Louis than them. And with Dayton sucking and and Duquesne being worse than I think believe it was expected, and VCU actually overachieving, people didn't think they were going to be good at all. So they're still not like consensus great teams. They're young. Um, they had a really disappointing year last year. But they've played really good, really well. Uh, this is a really revealing matchup because it's a team that sort of plays like you, and it's a bounce back game on short rest. I think it may be just what the doctor ordered to see if this team has the edge that we're hoping they do and haven't seen thus far. But regardless, lose it, and I still don't know what it says about UMass because you can be four and three, and then you play Mason. Who you? I mean, if we lose them again, I, I just I can't. But the point is, you have Mason, St. Joe's, who sucks, Fordham, possibly a makeup game against GW, Dayton at home, who's been really bad. There's a lot of winnable games left. How many games you'll actually end up playing is unclear. I bet you they play like 15. They don't get to 18. There is still a path, a pretty clear path to certainly 9 and 6, 10 and 5. And it's really just a matter of like, you know, it's really just a matter of whether this team wants to be a little more coherent and a little more consistent. Because the thing is, when you're incoherent, those games that should be six-point wins, eight-point wins, become three-point losses, eight-point losses. And it's just a matter now of, does this team finish the year, you know, 11-4 and in the league and rattle off a bunch? Or do they go pedestrian seven and eight, eight and seven? And is there even a difference between the two of them? I don't know. But at this point, I'm kind of just waiting for conference tournament time because I really think we could win the conference tournament. I know that's a far cry from a lot of what I've been saying tonight. But the incoherence works both ways. There's nobody in this league that's fantastic. And St. Louis, who is supposed to be, just missed like a month of the season. You can't tell me it's not going to affect them. It will. They're also coached by Travis Travis Ford, who I don't trust in conference tournament play, despite what they did two years ago. You get the right matchups. You avoid Davidson. And you avoid Bonaventure early. Richmond struggled. Who knows? Who fucking knows? I don't know. I don't know. Wish I had answers. I'm not giving up. I'm still excited to see him play. 
They got a lot of individual playmakers on this team that are really fun to watch. Okay, mailbag time. Mailbag, of course, brought to you by the fine folks at Five College Movers, world-class, stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Tell Pat and the gang we sent you. If you do go with Five College, and you should, and you will if you're moving, you'll go with Five College and you'll tell them we sent you. Friends of the podcast, UMass Athletics, friends of UMass Basketball. We love the folks at Five College Movers. All right, to the mailbag we go. M. Polando 55 says, Assuming we finish in the 7 to 10 seed range for A10 tourney, who do you want to play first round within reason? Um, on principle, and if a uh, friend of the pod, Stats McKinney, could look this up, I'd appreciate it. Just do it with UMass to make it simpler. What is our record, or what is any team's record against teams they've beaten twice in a season when they play them a third time? Uh, it's known as one of those like impossible things to do in sports, but I don't know if that's just like what they say, and then your brain tricks you into remembering all the times your favorite teams lost a third time, or if there's actual empirical stacking of that. Uh, but that being said, I don't want to play LaSalle again. Uh, fairly confident we could beat Fordham a third time, but um, that's not really... I guess, no, you, if you were a seven seed, how does it work? The, like the, the, the pillow fight game is the night before, and so like the 11 plays the 14, and the winner of that game, they don't reseed them, I don't think. So 12-13 winner plays the 5, and then the... Yeah, okay, okay. So if you're 7 to 10, you play the 10. So who's in there? Um, I'll tell you, <laughs> as much as we always struggle with them, I feel reasonably confident that uh, if we lose to Mason next Saturday and we play them a third time in uh, in the A-10 tournament in like a 7-10 game, I feel confident we beat them because they're just not that good. I do like their bigs, though, which is a concern. But, uh, yeah, maybe I don't want to play them. I mean, but I, I weirdly would take them over LaSalle, despite us beating LaSalle twice in in by double digits each time. Like, that LaSalle team is like, we just played really well. You know, some of it is, like, simple. It's just we played well and both times. And, like, they obviously are okay, even though they lost by 35 to bad Mason team. They beat Dayton and they beat Richmond like it's weird it's just it's weird um but I wouldn't want to play them again so I really just want to avoid those three teams I mentioned earlier in the show and they're not going to be in that seven to ten range uh like probably Duquesne I I just think like we we match up well with them they've had a down year and um they lost their, you know, one of their stud guards, and so like I think we could pressure them, and and they don't have anyone to stop Trey. So I probably feel okay about Duquesne. Um, who else? I mean, like Rhodey again depends on if we split with them. If we lose one in the regular season, I'm confident we win the rubber game. But I don't want to play them a third time because they do have talent. Um, so like I guess there's really if you're in the seven to ten range, those are kind of the. Those are kind of the games you get. I would like to play Dayton, I think. I, I'm like, I don't think they're good. Um, I think even if we... And McCall knows Anthony Grant really well. 
So actually, yeah, weirdly, I'd like to play Dayton. But then the only thing is, like, you don't know, Crutcher in his, like, last games might just go bonkers and hit, like, 35 a night. And I don't know if McCall has the defensive game plan to stop him. But in general, I actually would like to play Dayton because I think he he's competed pretty well against them. He beat him twice his first year. He knows Anthony Grant really well. He knows what he'll do to prepare. Um, I'd say, like, probably them or Mason, if we, especially if we lose a second time. Yeah, them or Mason. Um, Pat Conroy 89 says, why does it seem like all of UMass Twitter has a better read in this team than McCall? Uh, <laughs> yeah, man, I don't know if all of UMass Twitter does. <laughs> Look, let's just be honest. It's a hard job. It, like, I know as much as we get on him, and, and that's what we do with, you know, we've done with UMass coaches for years, and that's what fans of any, you know, that's part of the game. Um, I think that, and I've thought about this a lot, but I think I've talked about it on the show, but I think sometimes with something like coaching a sports team, it's one of the rare... It's a little bit like school teachers, um, and I guess there's some other professions that fall under this, but it's the kind of thing that a lot of people who don't do it follow it really closely. Right? Like if, you, if you're a parent, your kids um, are... You know, you follow who their teachers are, and you're, like, invested in, you know, the quality of the education, and, and you're kind of like, come on, like... You, how did you not do this? And like, without necessarily realizing that, you know, that teacher has 30 other kids to teach and there's, the, now, when it's a disastrous teacher, and co- so co- I'm, I'm, I'm making the analogy that coaching is, is similar in the sense that like, if you've been watching sports your whole life and you do it all the time and you've been around the game, like, you're like, I follow this shit. Like, why doesn't he make this call? Like, you know, I, I see it. Why doesn't he? So I should note that I think everybody kind of knows the great teachers or the great coaches. Like there are certain people in any profession, particularly professions that you kind of understand, you kind of know what they're all about. Like, like if you ask me what a, you know, I heard recently, you know, like a great computer programmer is like 25 times more valuable than even, like, a good one. Some preposterous, you know, and that's why, like, they're getting kids out of MIT or whatever and paying them, like, insane signing bonuses because it's, like, if you're 25 times better than even a good one. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for sort of super performers and whatever um, in any profession. And, like, I always laugh with computer programmers because, like, when I think of a computer programmer, I think of, this is a long digression, so just bear with me. I think of a computer program, I think of like Mark Zuckerberg. I think any kid who learned to code is Mark Zuckerberg. And then I go to my high school reunion some years back, and kids who were like, like not dummies, but like, I'm like, what are you up to? They're like, oh, I'm a coder. I'm like, what the fuck? No, you're not. Like, you know, because I thought everybody who was a coder was Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, that's not the case. Like, you can take a coding class online in 12 weeks and like be an okay coder and do whatever it is you do. Or you can, and not that Zuckerberg was the greatest, I don't know if he's the greatest coder. My point is like the sort of sexy, like with coaching, right? It's like 
you hear of like Mike Krzyzewski and you're like, you, no one would ever be like, oh, well, how come that guy who's a JV coach at my local high school isn't Mike Krzyzewski, right? Like you kind of just get it. But what that leads to, I think, is that it's very hard to assess the kind of next rung of coach, right? Like, you know in this in college basketball that you have, like, Bill Self, Mike Krzyzewski, John Calipari, and then if you go at, like, sort of like a slightly lower level, like, you know, you have Bob McKillop and, like, Mark Schmidt, those kind of guys. Like, you know they're really good. But it's very hard to say. And then you know there's, like, some disasters, because Charlie Molnar is like, this guy was not ready for prime time, like, at all. You know, like, and, you know, he'd been around forever, but, like, just clearly didn't have it. Uh, Micheletto, the hockey coach. You know, there's always, like, you know. But then it's, like, hard to figure out who's in that next tier. I note all that as a, as a really roundabout way of kind of, defending McCall, I guess, because we don't see everything. There's so many decisions, and there's so much second-guessing in all of it, and there's so much that goes on behind the the scenes. We don't even know why two players are out right now, you know? And we have strong hunches as to who he is now after several years, but even I'm not prepared to say he's, like, a complete lost cause, you know, it feels like he can at least, like, manage the team. Look, a lot of teams in the league are, like, losing kids midseason, you know? He's, you got to give him credit in some regards. Things that you might take for granted, again, can't take for granted. But I do think, with all that being said, that kind of, like, weird-ass, long, roundabout way of halfway defending him and saying that it's hard to know what a really good coach actually is because if you're not one of the absolute great ones – it's hard to say, like, what the next tier is if you're just a fan or if you're an athletic director. With all that being said, he is a guy, I believe, that the word isn't overthinks the game. The word isn't even overcoaches the game. The word is, I think, first of all, he's young. He's still fairly young. I think he tries to prove in certain ways that, like, he knows the game. It, and I used to love that because in his his press conferences um, after his first year, it was like he would just diagnose exactly what went wrong. I was like, damn, he really gets it. Like, he totally is, like, spot on. He's introspective after games. You know, I loved, I literally, like, actively looked forward to his pressers that whole first year. Now I don't want to go near one. I don't want to fucking go near one. Because what it suggests is that if you are that adept at succinctly diagnosing precisely what went wrong after every game, then why aren't they being fixed? Like, you know, it's like, come on. And so I think there's a thing. And sometimes when he talks about the game, he uses terminology and stuff that's like very sophisticated. And it's like, yes. This is basketball, and it's more complex than I appreciate because it's not my living. But, like, you got to make it clear to the players. And, like, I'm not saying I know more about the game than players, but I've been following it for longer than they've been alive, so I should at least, like, 
pretty coherently understand your terminology, and if I don't, it means some kid doesn't either. And by the way, like I think Noah and Ronnie and Carl, to an extent, really do. Trey, and like he does fairly well with those guys, but not everybody is like that. Um, not everybody's cerebral in their approach to the game, and so I think that. And I think sometimes when you are an expert in something, in a thing that everybody thinks they know about, you feel, especially when you're young and you're up and coming, and you're not totally self-assured in your approach to the game, I think you feel as a coach, you have to kind of do more to show you know the game, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a performative thing. You have to like perform and, 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 and basically say, Look, I know the game. Even if you're not saying it, your actions are suggesting it. Your mannerisms. And a guy like Bob McKillop is just an unflappable motherfucker who's, like, done it for 40 years. And it's like, I know who I am. I know what I'm about. And, like, I know what kind of kids fit me. I'm not going to win many games in the tournament, but I'm always going to win a lot of games in the league because I know exactly what I need and what I want and who might like and that takes years to cultivate. I think it's 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 hard to appreciate the brilliance of that. And he loses games too. But it's like I just think that and so I I note all that because sometimes with this group it's like hey dude, Javon Garcia can go 94 feet in about 3.2 seconds and like go high off the, you know, and, and, and finger roll it in. Like, don't have him run off four screens and, like, try to find a flashing guy off of another screen. Off of, like, let him rock, dude, you know? Like, I know you want to pass the ball 220 times, whatever. let him rock, you know? I mean, you got Trey Mitchell, like, let him rock. And I think when you just, like, there's this reputation around the game, there always has been where guys are known as like roll out the ball and play coaches. And it's, it's seen, it's, it's just it, that, that, that phraseology is used pejoratively, right? It's used as a knock because it's like, yeah, he doesn't really coach. He gets good dudes and he lets them go. Well, guess what? If you're a roll the ball out and play coach, and they say this about Calipari unfairly to an extent, um, they said about Steve Fisher for years at Michigan, and I don't know if you know, I think he's probably not at San Diego State anymore, but he had Kawhi there, I think. And, you know, they say it about, I think, have they said that about Archie Miller? I don't know. They've said, they say it about guys all the time, right? And sometimes it's bad, right? Like, I think, I think, I think, like, uh, the guy at Rhode Island, is David Cox, is kind of a roll, uh, roll the ball and play coach. I think to some extent Phil Martelli was that way in a certain regard. Um, and in some instances, like, we, we just, like, switched. In that roadie game, we just threw a zone, and then we'd throw a man, and they'd be, like, confused. Like, that's bad roll-out-the-ball-and-play. Like, I get it. Danny Hurley, by the way, kind of a roll-out-the-ball-and-play guy. But successful because his teams play their dicks off. So, yeah, like, I would not feel good if I was a UConn fan and they were playing, like, um, Davidson or St. Bonaventure because, like, the trickery of those great coaches can 
you know, throw some wrinkles into your what you want to do. But the difference is, like those guys just play. He gets his kids to play so hard. He just, they're just they're they're they have a, a coherence because their coherence is, yeah, they're kind of roll out the ball and play team, but they play hard. They're a roll out the ball and play motherfucking hard team, right? Like that's what those teams are. So I, I note all this because this is a long answer, one of my longest ever to a um, question on this podcast. So I apologize, but. The roll out the ball and play thing, I think when you're a young coach, is you see it as a pejorative. It's like you are not really the one coaching them. Like you're just getting guys and they're winning games. But guess what? The job is to get guys and win games. And I think that's very hard for younger coaches who who fancy themselves as tacticians to an extent. And I remember, I think I've said it on the show, but the first time I ever met Matt, really nice guy, by the way, um, at an event in New York City before his first season, it was me and him and Bamford at the bar. We talked for a while. I had a great time. He was talking, at one point, he, he, he motioned and he was like, I'm trying to mime it with my hands, but he's like, he was like at Chattanooga, he's like, my first year or second year, he's like, my playbook was that big. And he basically was showing like how he had the thickest playbook in the country. And he wore that as a badge of honor. And that was refreshing because I don't think, I mean, Derek Kellett was the consummate roll the ball and play guy. So it was at that time, it was like, great. And then in his first year, he had some really nice like after timeout inbounds plays and some other things. So you were like, okay, that's who he is. But the problem is, now he's got a roster. He didn't. He didn't ever get rosters that were good enough to win with that alone. Because being a tactician does not win you Atlantic Tens. Even Mark Schmidt and Bob McKillop still have dudes. They combine the two, but they still have players. And he basically figured, had sort of like figured it out and got good players. And now I think it's like now he can be a little bit more of a roll out the ball and play coach. But he's still not totally sure if he wants to be a roll-out-the-ball-and-play coach or if he wants to run all these half-court sets and throw the ball around 200 times. And so that incoherence comes in, in, in again. He's grappling, I think, on some deep level with his identity as a basketball coach, which does he feel fundamentally more comfortable with. And I think some of that is a function of like when you're a career assistant uh, for a while with a great coach like Billy Donovan, you just watch and internalize and you don't necessarily um like i mean how could you you can't say i didn't like what billy did here and i learned from that you learn only the good things right like (laughs) you won national titles you don't question that but if you're finding your own way you got to figure out that feel thing and i think this is where that what we've described as lack of feel comes from it's not that he totally lacks feel, but it's that he doesn't know if he wants to be a roll-the-ball-and-play guy or a tactician. And he hasn't figured out a seamless way to merge the two that is, that is befitting of who he is as a person and as a coach. And that, in a nutshell, is what I've tried, been basically trying to say for an hour and 20 minutes. I finally have, like, bullshitted my way into a halfway decent explanation that encapsulates both his basketball savvy and his psychology. Who knows? Maybe I'm totally wrong. 
But I think that's why sometimes it feels like we know more because we see this team for what it is and are just like roll the ball out and play and have them play hard. Like I think we we want this team to be a Danny Hurley team. And it's crazy to say that because he can't stand the guy. And because I don't always think he was a great coach. Like he like he lost games because he wasn't a tactician. So don't get me wrong. But like Bob McKillop, he's a tactician. And he's going to ride with that. He knows who he is. You know, he's not a roll the ball and play coach. And he knows exactly who he is. And he gets every player to fit in that mold. And if they don't, they don't work and it's on. We are in a weird nether region where we're not quite sure which one we want to be. <coughs> okay. Uh, C. Pulafico. Puli. So it's just curious what the next steps forward are for this team as we move to a new week of basketball. I think I've touched on that a lot in the intro. But the next steps are... And, and like, so actually, let me clarify it. The Hurley thing is, is instructive because I think it's, like, the only thing you can do with this group to make it better now is to play 40 minutes hard. Because when they play, like, 20 minutes hard defensively, the offense just flows from there, and they're good. They're good. I mean, like, the half, like, the ha- the second half in the first LaSalle game, the first half in the second LaSalle game, the first half in the Fordham game, and basically the, the first 30 minutes of the Rhode Island game, we were a really good team. Like, as good as anyone in this league. Conversely, when we take possessions off and like lose that intensity and you can see it you can see the bench it's just like it's I can't explain it. it's palpable you can actually see a like lack of energy at times facial you know all those things about like you know um, kind of like attitude on the bench like you know body language it really is revealing I, I swear like but you can see it and, and we when we against Mason and, and even Fordham when we played badly in the second half, like, we would lose to anyone. I mean, we beat Fordham by 29 and a half and then lost by, like, 11. Now, I'm not saying you're not going to, you know, you lose by two or something, you know? Like, it's, it's like we are really good or really bad. And um, the difference is just intensity of effort. And if you're missing shots, like, okay, but go defend. So I think all you can ask for right now to, to kind of overcome all these bigger things. It just starts with, you know, if you just play hard all the time, and it's easier said than done, if you just play hard all the time, then some of that coherence and identity, I think, will come from that. So that's, like, all I would say. Ryan Schultz says, what can we do to beat teams like Davidson and Bonnie, or what should we try to do differently? Yeah, I got to be honest. Like, Davidson, I think we could hang with them just because they don't have quite as many weapons. And as we saw in the first half, when we locked down Grady, like, they really struggled. So I think, you know, with them, it's just playing hard and, 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 and you know, figuring out how to beat his own, and it's doable. With a team like Bonaventure, and to some extent Richmond, although Richmond is so lacking in depth that we might catch some in foul trouble, and, you know, Grant Golden gets in foul trouble, and all of a sudden Trey goes for 35. Like, that, that's a scenario that I could envision against them. But with Bonnie, I mean you got to hope that they miss shots and don't get offensive rebounds. You know, like, I, I don't think... You're not going to out-scheme them, if that's what you're asking. You know, you have to scout them well. You have to be prepared for them. And when they do sort of do all that trickery and run off a million screens and do stuff that's like, damn, how did they get that open look on an alley-oop? You can't back down... Like, you can't 
let it demoralize you. You just got to go possession by possession. And I think like that's that's cliche, but I, I really do think like some of it's a little bit of luck. You need them to miss shots, and you need to you know not let them get second chances. You need to get Oshun you know in in foul trouble. You know, there's things like that, and and you know you need to disrupt Lofton. You need to have like Garcia all over him, but they're a good team and like they run good stuff and you have to disrupt them as much as possible and then when they do do their thing and frustrate you you just got to keep going keep going you know and I think today once Davidson got a little hot we sort of looked like deer in the headlights for long stretches and some of that it was bad subbing I think but so I think you'd be super mindful of, of which lineup combinations work too and I've sort of reiterated that a bunch but you know look those are teams that we're going to struggle against especially Bonaventure um, and you know we we do fine against the roll the ball and play teams. Travis Ford is the ultimate roll the ball and play guy, but his teams play hard. That's the difference. Like some years, Travis's teams don't play as hard, and you know you're not this year they do. And yeah, um, mostly underscore David says knowing McCall will start and run CP as in Carl Pierre thirty plus minutes. A night, no matter what. Do you hope he returns for his extra year? I'd love him off the bench for 15 minutes a night, but McCall would never do that. Yeah, this kind of basically like <laughs> encapsulates the entire hour introduction of the show, or large swaths of it. Um, gosh, you can't. It's just so hard to say because he is such a good kid, and like you don't want to say like you don't want a kid like that back, but and it's not on him, but it's like, if you have all these other guys back, first of all, you're not going to have all these guys back, let's be honest. Unless things end really well this year, let's just let's just come out and say it, like there's going to be major changes in the offseason. I mean, if you end up 500 with this roster and Carl ends up averaging 35 minutes a night, how can you in good in good faith, if you're some of these kids and their parents or whatever, say, yeah, that's the situation I want my kid returning to. Fifth-year senior who plays 37 minutes a game when my kid shot, you know, 60% or whatever and played 11. No. I mean, come on. Let's just get real here. Um, I hope they all come back. I do. But I think that if Carl is back and is understood that he's coming back in the same capacity that he's been utilized this year, then kids would couldn't be blamed for looking elsewhere. I do think that if Carl understood that he was coming back in a... And the thing is, it's like, I was going to say in a reduced role. It's not really a reduced role. It's reduced minutes. And I think too often, we as fans and kids as players are kind of preconditioned because of the nature of the sport, really, to think that minutes and role are um, indistinguishable, and it's not true. Right? Like, Carl could probably put up the same numbers in half the minutes. That's an astonishing thing to say. Certainly in two-thirds of the minutes. Like, what is he giving you in 35 that you didn't get in the first 23. He made one basket today. It was with three seconds left. Like, did he have to play 35 minutes? 
and he didn't <laughs> wasn't like okay and by the way a guy like Debaji, and I know people are gonna like you know I've been a big Debaji guy whatever because I like his energy right and now I like his defense but there's something to be said and even Mark Gasparini it's really hard coming into games for like two minutes at a time and being expected to sort of be an offensive spark. It's really hard. And I've ne- I've almost never seen it work. I mean, Freddie Riley had moments. There's guys, you know, Trey, uh, Trey Davis in maybe his sophomore year, maybe his freshman year for little moments with Chaz where he'd hit a couple threes in a row. I mean, it's happened, but it's really hard to create instant offense off the bench as a college player coming in the game for short stretches. And I note all that because as a thought experiment, what if you just played Debaji Walker 35 minutes? Like, I think he could go four for 13 and play better defense. We saw him a couple times last year against, like, St. Louis. He had, like, almost 20. I mean, it's not like, right? And so I think people just reflexively are like, oh, well, um, that's not a good decision. And yet, like, somehow because Carl's numbers over the years have been reliably in double figures, we just reflexively assume that he you know, needs those minutes. But Carl, ironically enough, kind of can be instant offense. Like, <laughs> like he, 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 it's a really interesting thought experiment, but like, God, I've used the word thought experiment way too many times. But it's a really interesting question to think, in how many minutes does he get his points? I would love to see that. Because I remember that game against LaSalle or somebody, he was three for 10 from three, but at one point he had like three in a row. And I even tweeted, I was like, Carl's back. Because he had, like, nine points in two minutes. The other 32 minutes he was on the court, he had, like, four. So, it's hard when you come off the bench and uh, don't get given a lot of minutes. And even, like, Mark um, Gasparini, like, it's just brutal. Like, you, you get out there and it looks brutal because he gets the ball for, like, one possession, back down, missed the shot, maybe throws the ball away the next possession, and then, bang, he's out. So... I'm not advocating, actually, for McCall taking people out that quickly. <laughs> but it's funny to think of the contrast between Carl, who can go, like, oh for his first nine, and he's still there. And, like, Debaji or whoever being out there for, you know, or DeAndre Dominguez, who's pretty athletic. Again, you can't tell me that if that kid plays 35 minutes, he's not going to get double figures. Like, you just... You know, I mean, and it's especially true with Cairo McCrory. There was that game, I think, against LaSalle when Cairo was like six for eight in like 15 minutes. Carl was like five for 13 in 38 minutes or whatever it was. You know, basically had double the shot attempts, double the minutes, and they still finished the same number of points. So, yeah, if he's back next year and he's playing 35 minutes, I don't, you know, I think you're going to see some real changes on the roster and, um, I do hope he returns if he's willing to play in a he's play, willing to play reduced minutes, not reduced role, reduced minutes. And by the way, 
I don't think anybody would be frustrated if he played 40 minutes if he was shooting. Like, what do you have to shoot? If you play 37 minutes a night, you, to me, you've got to be an awesome defender. Carl's a decent defender. Not the worst on the team by any means. You've got to be an awesome defender, and you've got to be, like, 45% shooter, at least, for a wing. Maybe 40. He's not. Um, <clears throat> Stu Ludicky. Three Trays, four DeAndres, or five Coltons. Which team is the king of the court? Ooh, that's a damn good question. I think the three Trays beat four DeAndres, because one of the DeAndres is kind of just taking the playoff. And five Coltons? I don't know. Colton's a Division One basketball player. If you have five kids out there and they play hard, I think they probably win. It's a hot take, but I think they probably win. Not, not. It wouldn't be pretty, but I think you play full court. Yeah, they definitely win. Cause like you'd have two just hounding the ball handler tray, and then like three guarding the other two, and I think that's, you know, that's. Like, there'd be a lot of 10-second violations. Uh, Luftig, Chem Engine PA, as in Chemical Engineer, Pennsylvania. Says, JB or TW deserves starting role over CP. Thoughts? Uh, wait, who's JB? Does he mean JG? TW is TJ Weeks. Uh, JB is... Am I missing something? Uh, I think he means JG. So, yes to JG. And I don't really think it matters, like, who Carl and TJ are. Like, let's be totally candid here. TJ's had a lot of really off nights, too. And he played really well today, so I think it, it, it raises those same questions. But I made the mistake earlier in the year, I think after the second Northeastern game, of being like, TJ needs to get all these minutes that Carl's not getting. And I now am much more of the mind that Cairo McCrory, if he comes back, should first of all get a lot of those. But that, depending on how the game is going, Debaji Walker, um, DeAndre Dominguez, if he comes back, gosh, I miss Preston Santos, because he was, oh, man, we could have really used him right now. Ugh. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, the starting, like who the five are, I don't really care. It's more I'm looking at cumulative minutes. If you want to start Carl because he's a senior and he's loyal, like I get that, that's totally fine. But if he opens the game in the first five minutes and he's 0 for 4, then, uh, yeah, take him out quick, you know? I mean, that's not hard. So, and it depends on the night, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's un, it's un, it's indefensible that Garcia is not starting. You talk about a guy who needs minutes to just, and, yeah, he, he picks up some really fouls, I get it, but he just needs to be out there and going, you know, and he and Noah can play alongside one another. Oh, Scott Perkins, UMass SJ, JSP, a stalwart listener of the program. Scott says... Um, Will CP come back next year? Yeah, boy, a lot of Carl questions today. Um, I think he will. I think a lot of thing, interesting things could happen in the offseason. I'm trying not to think about it because I want to I delay the inevitable. It's going to be another long offseason. It's such a short, frustrating year. We should have been on our, like, 20th game today, you know? I mean, we played – this team played fucking two non-conference games. Two. That's 11 short of what we usually play. We've already had three conference games uh, – canceled or postponed. 
So it's like 14 games. and I mean, we could have easily been on, what, like probably game 20, 21 today. So I'm just trying to enjoy it and not think so much about that for now because we'll have plenty of time in the offseason to discuss all these things. But it is nice to have some basketball no matter how challenging the circumstances are. But, yeah, I think he probably does come back, if only because, let's be totally honest, find me one school in America at a comparable or higher level that's going to get Carl Pierre 15 shots in 35 minutes a night. Doesn't exist. Does not exist. He could transfer down. And the thing about Carl, though, is, like, his game, he's one of those kids who's, like, there's always kids like this in college basketball, and it'll sound weird, but his game is the same if he's at Kansas or if he's at Amherst College. He's a catch-and-shoot guy who could put it on the floor a little bit and has gotten better at you know understanding how to read defenses and things like that. And he can defend you know weaker guards at you know reasonably well at most levels. Um, but it's not like he's going to go out and get you twenty-five a night anywhere really like he'll have those nights but he is who he is and he, there's a val and everyone in the country wants that guy because if he goes from 32 percent to 41 percent now you can become a 22 win team instead of a 20 win team so it's weird because he could if he's willing to accept the reduced role as a fifth year guy like sure maybe he goes to bc and plays 14 minutes and hits like Still goes for 11 points a game. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, he scores his points quickly. So, but I don't know if he's going to find a better situation. A guy who, you know, clearly McCall's in his corner, and I respect that. You know, he's the only guy who's stuck with McCall for four years. There's something to be said for that. That's that's a lifelong thing. That's powerful. I get it. Um, so I don't. I, I would imagine he'd come back, and I don't want to discourage him from coming back. I, I, I got to just say it again. Because parents listen to the show and whatever, maybe even players, if you make your shots, you can play 40 minutes, and we will all be in awe. And if you don't, your coach should take you out for a while. That's it. All it is. Um... And it sucks because it, it, it makes you feel like you have to personalize it because you get so frustrated. And it's not his fault. He's missing shots. It happens. But, like, you know, if you're missing so many shots, just come out for a bit. It's on you. Just, coach, got to take you out for a bit. Um, Gabe Rosenberg, Gaber205 says, What even is his own offense? And someone responds to him, Timothy Haley, Tim Chai72 says, Which one? And I think he's referring to, like, our inability to play against his own, his own you know, our, our inability to generate offense against his own. Um, the answer to this question is UMass right now certainly doesn't know what one is. Um, but, you know, flash Ronnie to the middle and get some guys in the corners, make some open shots, and hope for the best. Marshmont 63, who's worse at in-game adjustments, Kellogg or McCall? Oh, it's been so long now. I think that uh, Kellogg actually makes worse um, worse adjustments, 
because he's just like totally unaware. But sometimes that's better because it's just so roll the ball out and play that he doesn't overcomplicate things. But if given like, if I, if put it this way, if you had both there, and I was coaching and I had an assistant, and both those those guys were my assistants, and I had an option of either of them, and I turned to McCall and I was like, okay, what should I do here? And I turned to Kelly and said, what should I do here? McCall would give me a complicated answer that sometimes would be right. Kelly would just be like, I don't know. And that also would end up being right because you just go with what you were doing. And in the end, I'm not sure it really matters because the incoherence of one and the uh, indifference of the other amount to the same results. So I hope that's not a cop-out, but that's how I see it. Um... I'd probably like McCall, though. I, I think he's better in that regard. Um, let me just see here. got to log back on. All right. Uh, A10 Conference, whose handle is Conference A10. Despite UMass's injury-ridden game today, do you think that the Davidson coaching staff outcoached UMass, especially in the second half of the game? <laughs> And great friend of the show, son of large Mark, responded to that. Said, follow up, do you think water is wet? <laughs> and the answer is, yes, I think Bob McKillop and co. Uh, uh, outcoached us. Only fans, the, uh, our friends who've been on the show, the Gola Standard, LaSalle guys, comedic, hilarious, follow them. Ask me my favorite cheesesteak. I don't know. What is it in Philly? It's like Geno's and Pat's, and then there's some others. I don't know. You guys tell me. I, I defer to you. Although there's a place I get a chopped cheese, which is like a New York cheesesteak, but it's actually on a bagel. It's called Bo's Bagels. The people who started actually live in my building. They're awesome. And uh, if you ever come to New York, they're actually now ranked like, I think they were ranked the best bagel in the city last year. But they have a Bose chopped cheese. It is, I had it yesterday, it is fucking to die for. So I don't know if that's a cop out of an answer, but. Um, Eric Friedlander, efried97, stalwart listener of the show, says, what's our ceiling if we get no one back? I don't know what he means by no one. Like, literally no one? Like, like they just have a roster with zero returnees? Uh, I mean, I would imagine, like, winning four games with a bunch of, like, random transfers and freshmen. But assuming the more realistic negative scenario, which is that, like, Trey is gone, and I think, like, JG would go as well because he's not being always utilized brilliantly. Ronnie could find another place to play. I mean, like, the worst-case scenario would be, like, Almost all the Woodstock kids leave except for um, Debaji and Noah. I think those guys will be back because they've already transferred. I think those two are back. I think TJ is kind of like a loyal UMass guy. I think Carl is back. So those four, and then like those are the only four I could like definitely envision back. By the same token, I could envision like ten of them back. It's just there's so much that could go on in the off season. I think I think like. You could have 10 or 11 back, too. I mean, it's just, I don't know the, the chemistry behind closed doors. Like, if they all like each other and they're having fun and they start winning, again, like, this team, they're still high ceiling. As crazy as it is, 
they still could win the A-10. I really believe that. Like, I really do. And um, if that happens, maybe everybody comes back. Who knows? You know, like, uh, there's so many scenarios. But those are, like, the only four I see. that I, You know, I bet you the Brian Matthews kid comes. Um, and I think he's going to be good. And then, is that our only freshman signed for next year? I don't know, it'd be weird. We have to sign a, find a bunch of kids all of a sudden. Um, let's see. Hang on. Next question. You should just fast forward like ten seconds while I find it. The next question is. Is that it? Is that all I got for tonight? Let's see if I got anything else. That might be it. Uh, somebody in the DMs. Um, no, it might be it for tonight. Damn. That's kind of anticlimactic. Oh, no, wait. Nope. CJ Jackson's dad is here. A shooter shoots always. That's the unwritten rule. Maybe he's just commenting on Carl. Rumor has it that the framers were going to put it in the Constitution, but ran out of ink. Uh, I don't know if that's a Second Amendment joke uh, or just something else. So seriously, if Carl is open and in rhythm, you got to live with the result. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with him, but it's like, you don't have to have him in rhythm 35 minutes a game. Like, that's kind of my issue. Um, that's it. That's all we got. As the great Andrew Kalagi, a.k.a. A. Kalagi, for long-time listeners would say, we out, we love you, and see you next week.